You're listening to an adult Sunday school class at Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. says lies in the power of the evil one. Now he's not discounting the providence of God there, but he's simply acknowledging the impact and influence of the, of the devil. So mysterious, greatly mysterious is the presence and the activity of evil in light of the overruling providence of God. Now we dealt with this somewhat in decrees, but now it's a little more immediate because it's the day-to-day things that we experience. The betrayals, the tragedies, the difficulties and hardships. As for you, said Joseph, you meant evil against me. There is evil, but God meant it for good. So there we have this perspective that God overrules all things, especially the evil, for good. At Pentecost, Peter was preaching and he did say this, Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan And foreknowledge of God, there you have the decree, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. There you have God's providence. So the most heinous act in the history of the world was overruled by God's providence for good. If he can overrule the cross for good, he can overrule anything for good. Any comments on this preliminary stuff? Any thoughts? Okay. So there are two things in that question, defining providence, that is his preserving power and his governing power. He preserves and he governs. So we're going to look at those two things, preservation and government. The God who created all things preserves his handiwork. As a matter of fact, if he didn't do that, there wouldn't be any handiwork. He alone is the one who can sustain all things. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Everything, every moment. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. And so through Jesus Christ, he sustains the cosmos, every single atom. All deistical, and when I say deistical, you probably know what that means. It's this theory that God is the deist, thinks that God just created the world and just kind of stands aloof now and lets it go on its own course. That's a deistical theory. The deist, like Thomas Jefferson. He is a transcendent God, but he's not eminent. He's not involved in this world, doesn't care about the world really. He's just the one who made it and brought it into being. So deistical theories of God's relation to his works are false. He's not aloof. He's a God who is very near. He is both transcendent and imminent, because as Paul said to the Areopagus, for in him we live and move and have our being. He's very present. We couldn't take one breath. Our our hearts could not beat one time without God's preservation. And his preservation of his creatures extends to all creatures, animate, inanimate, as well as all of their actions, whatever happens the sparrows that touch upon the ground and so forth. Nothing is too great to be above his preservation, and nothing is too small to be beneath it. 
He numbers the sparrows that touch down. He counts the hairs on human heads. I mean, think of that. He counts the number of hairs. How insignificant can that be? And yet Jesus says explicitly that he does so. So nothing is too small the throw of the lot, the throw of the dice, everything. And I think it's difficult for us. We, we tend to think, okay, in the big things, God is superintending all things. But in the small things, he really doesn't have time to concern himself with these minor details. That's not true. As an infinite God, he can control everything, even down to the hairs of our heads. And it's especially humans and angels that are the subjects of his holy, wise, and powerful preservation. Now, the shorter catechism doesn't get into that, but the larger catechism goes into detail about this, his providence toward the angels and his providence toward human beings, putting him in the garden, appointing him to dress it, putting the creatures under his dominion, that kind of thing. He sustains, he directs, he disposes us in accord with our free rational, moral human natures. So again, we're not robots. He is superintending all of it. He ordains all of it. He overrules all of it. And yet we choose freely, rationally, morally. We're human beings. And that's how he treats us. And his preservation, of course, pervades the sphere of grace so that believers in the church are preserved. I forget which czar it was, but... I think one of the Christian missionaries was in Russia, and he was there, and um, the czar said, well, I want you to convince me as to why your religion is true. And I want you to do it with one word, which was a very tall order, you can imagine. And the missionary thought for a moment, and he said, Israel. And you get what he was saying. This teeny little people, this remnant of humanity, this tiny nation, was preserved throughout the centuries. God's preserving power, and it, and it worked. It worked. His preservation pervades the sphere of grace, so the believers and the church, the church of the Old Testament, the church of the New Testament, we are preserved. I am sure of this, says Paul, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus. And that regards the church, against which the gates of hell will not prevail, and it regards believers whose salvation is sure. There is nothing that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And part of that is because God keeps us by his power through faith unto salvation. That's an amazing thing. So that's the first part of the preservation. Any comments or questions on that part? He preserves us, okay? All right, let's continue in preservation. He, pre he preserves and he sustains all things. As Nehemiah says, you are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. So he created it all. And you preserve all of them. And the host of heaven worships you, as they should. He is the great preserver. And in one sense, now this is not explicit in the catechism, but I want to work through this. This is something that Gerstner taught, and I think he's probably right. God's providence can be considered as his continuous recreation. Now you're going to think, oh, that's kind of strange. I never heard that. I thought he rested. Well, he did, but let's talk through it. 
Creation is the bringing into existence all things that have being, great and small. So he created it all in one grand beginning. He's the author of all things. He's the imminent preserver of all things. The same power that he exercised to create all things is exercised each moment to preserve all things. And that's key. So it's not as if he, he created it, oh, that's great, kind of sat back and just let it go. He started with creation, and it continues. It never abated, never stopped. So the world and the cosmos is here. It has existence, but every moment of every day, that creative, sustaining, almighty power is being exerted to keep you and I alive. Some say that God preserves his creatures by just preventing their destruction. He makes the human being with this sort of built-in, continuous being. He gave you life. Okay, there you go. Now, go on, and I'll just keep you from destruction. But it's far more than that. Created beings have no power in themselves to continue as existent beings. As I said, you could not draw one breath if the sustaining and preserving power of God didn't enable you to do so. Only the self-sufficient, unchangeable God has power to maintain the beings that he created. And the natural tendency, and Augustine was big on this, the natural tendency of created being is to lapse into non-being. Entropy, right? The whole universe is the same way. So there's no power in the creatures to continue. By the word of his power, he upholds the universe. He upholds the creature. He upholds everything about us. Let me keep going on this one. So he's the source of our being and our continued existence. In him we live, we move, and have our being every single moment of our lives. On into eternity. The only reason that we have immortal souls is because he will preserve us throughout eternity. So every moment we owe our continued existence to him, there's nothing in us that has the durability of which, he is which is characteristic of him. It's not as if he gave us a durable being at the start and then just let us go about our daily lives, as I said earlier. He preserves us by continuing the creation, using his creative power to sustain us every single day, every moment. That's why recognizing the hand of God, even in the small things of life, is such a wonderful thing. The unbeliever doesn't. He never even gives thanks to God. But the believer can see the hand of God at work in everything. In him we have our being. Our very existence depends on God. Every moment of every day, some speak as if the explosive power of creation is followed by the cruise control of providence. I think that's wrong. It's not so much an error as much as it's, it's, it's not enough, put it that way. It's not just cruise control. That same explosive power is exercised every moment. But of course, as we go through this, I'm trying to understand that the most important thing is that God preserves us. 
Creation, think of it this way, is only the first in the providential series. There's no qualitative difference between the act of creation and the act of preserving you and I every moment, as if somehow the creative act was just totally unique. He creates, and that power which was exercised was just continued. He just preserves. It's a chronological difference. The original creation happens, and the ongoing creation or preservation comes next. Now, let me just open it up for questions. I don't know if I've explained this clear enough, but. Do you, know, do you see what I'm trying to see, say with this? That it's just not this clear, definitive distinction between the act of creation as if it happened, it's done, the calm, and then God just sort of preserves. It's, this, it's the act of creation, and that power is exerted every single moment throughout history. And what that does, <clears throat> it helps us to feel closer to God. He is not a God who is aloof. He is a God who is imminent, and he's involved and interested in every moment and every detail of our lives. Every detail. And as a wise heavenly father, he chastises us, he disciplines us, he encourages us, he supplies us with everything we need. And that's part of providence. So we have our being in him alone who constantly upholds us. Our sense of identity is not destroyed. Our sense of identity is established. He keeps us. He knows our name from eternity. Our identity comes from his hand. And it's true by immediate creation when he makes us and brings us into being an ongoing providence. So it does help us to feel closer, who sustains us each and every moment. My father is working until now, and I am working. So when it says he rested, I don't believe it simply means that he stopped all of his work. No, it means that he was enthroned above his creatures. But he continues to work and sustain us every moment. To be or to exist is to continue to be as God himself preserves us each and every second. He exhibits his immediate activity in miracles. We see the virgin birth, his raising of the dead, his healing the lame. These are miracles. His power is evident in those things. He also exhibits his power in the ordinary operation of the world. Again, for us, it's so common. We see trees and flowers and people and dogs and all kinds of things. But it's an amazing thing. Mark? Uh, <clears throat> Pastor Ray, would you, would you also say that he preserves us even before we were regenerated? He um, sustained us by preserving his judgment upon our lives. Is that is a way that he also sustains us? Absolutely. He's long-suffering to allow us Absolutely. That's a very good point, that he withholds and delays judgment. In fact, he did that in history, didn't he? In the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Well, Adam did die spiritually and eternally, but God withheld final judgment so that the whole gospel could unfold throughout history. And even with the unbeliever, he gives him life, sometimes long life, as an opportunity to repent and believe. But as we'll see in his government... The best that a believer can enjoy is a tragedy. And that was, uh, I, I think, that passage, um, I think it was 
have to button up the wheat and the tares. You know, he believes it in there. That's right. So that we can grow and flourish. That's in right. In some way, even with uh, uh, when Israel came into the promised land, did we just kill all the all the uh, tribes that were an abomination to him? No, because the wild beasts would overwhelm them. Right. You know? Exactly. So we get a picture of that. Yeah, that's right. Rob? Um, we were reading Mark 4 last night, and it was the parable of the sower and the seeds falling on the ground. Is it kind of related to providence? Yeah, I think so, definitely, because in his providence, that seed is sown, and it's sown on a diverse kinds of soils. Um, and so providence pervades and influences the whole sphere of grace, the whole idea that somebody would share the gospel with you or preach Christ to you. Give God thanks that somebody shared Christ with you, right? Because if they had never done that, then you never would have become a Christian. Or in a family, your family, your parents training you. Absolutely, the, the sower, parable of the sower, or parable of the soils, as some would say. Yeah, Lynn? Yes. Absolutely. I think first, is it first or second Corinthians five seventeen, something like that. Some one of those addresses. I don't know, but you're exactly right. That that creative activity, and it's some have described it as a miracle of grace, but it certainly is the creative and recreative activity of God. That's that's an amazing thing, Don. Yeah, where does the church stand on miracles? Some, some philosophies are that it ended with the, with the uh, uh, regeneration of Christ, uh, rebirth of Christ, uh, resurrection, yeah. Or is it a continuing? Well, you're right. There are different theories. We believe that they've ceased, and here's the reason why, because... The miracles were used not just because God wanted to impress people. Miracles were used to confirm the message and the messenger. Nicodemus comes to Jesus. We know that you're a teacher from God. Why? Because nobody could do these works that you do unless God was with him. So the miracles are used to confirm the gospel and the gospel messengers, the apostles and so forth. Once the gospel is complete. Once the New Testament canon is complete, there's no longer any need for God to confirm the message, right? It's, in, it's, in, it's inscribed in the scriptures. It's inspired scripture. So we say, can God do it? Absolutely. God can do whatever he wants. If your leg was chopped off, he could give you another one in an instant. He can do it, the question is not, can he do it? The question is, will he? Or should we expect him to do it? And we believe because Hebrews 1 says, in these last days, he's spoken to us in his son. He has revealed to us everything we need to know in Christ. You see Christ, you see the Father. Well, if we need continuing revelation, then that means Christ is not enough. No, Christ is sufficient. So we have Christ, we have the fullness of revelation, there's no need for any more confirmation, 
miracles, we should not expect them anymore. Does that mean a person who is diagnosed with stage four cancer can't be healed in the hospital? No, God can do that. And he often does through the means. What's that? So then what would you call I'd call it God working through means, whether it's medicine that the doctor's prescribed or the diet that he's taking. We, don't, we can't explain everything and doctors can't explain everything. But the question again is not, can God heal a stage four cancer patient? Of course he can. And does he? Yes. But should we classify that as a miracle? In other words, something God does without means, against means, above means? No. And um, there have been so many. B.B. Warfield, I think, has a great book. It's called Counterfeit Miracles. It's kind of the classic study on this. And he goes into great detail showing that a lot, most if not all, that he saw of these so-called miracles were counterfeit. Now, if you get involved in the occult, that's a real power. The devil has real power. And we don't want to discount that. Luther's right. Our adversary is far above us. But he can't do things the way God can do them. So he can do things that are pretty amazing, but he can't do true miracles because only God can do that. Yet when, when a miracle happens, I'll put it in quotes for you, uh, it, it's such an opportunity to testify. Goodness and to glorify God through eternal, uh, you know. And those things, extraordinary providence. Let's put it that way. That's yeah. That's the Presbyterian way to describe it, right? Um, Scott, you had this question a while ago, and, and you pointed out, you know. We, we see people heal from cancer or certain illness, and the doctors can't explain it, so we'll assign this was a miracle. But never have we witnessed somebody with their arm lopped off, or in this case, you know, somebody I know, we know just lost their lower limb because of diabetes. We've never witnessed a limb regrown. Right. Right? And that would be something that we can visibly see. A lot of these second or third um, acts or uh, means that get worked out, we assign this because we don't understand it. Right. We don't know all the mechanics and how God did it. And by the power of the word, we would never see a lame man walk. By the power of the spoken word, we would never see a blind man see. That's a miracle. If I said to you and you're blind, Pete, get up and walk. And he got up and walked. That's a miracle. It's above, it's against, it's without, without means. But again, if we have a stage four cancer patient, it's an incredible thing. The doctors have given up hope. They put him on life support and walked away and left the room. And the next day, he's up and walking around. And you say to yourself, wow, that's incredible. Yes, it is. We thought he was a goner. Now, am I going to call that a miracle? See, this is the key. Do we have legitimacy from Scripture to call that a miracle? We throw around the word miracle all the time today. Oh, it's a miracle. You know, God got me home safely on Delta Airlines. It's a miracle. Wow. 
we have to be careful because I think there is a technical use and a technical use of that word miracle. Yes, Don. We should even be, we should be careful, extra careful, because even pharaoh sorcerers turned stabs and the snakes yeah. and the water and the blood. Yeah. And that was certainly not from God. No. No. There are some mysterious things that can take place. And again, we need to give due respect, not affection, but due respect to the powers of evil. They are at work in the sons of disobedience. And if we open up ourselves to the occult, we are dabbling in extreme danger. But when we talk about miracles, we have to be very careful. And I do think that it's used technically in Scripture for that which confirms the message or the messenger. Do we need to have any confirmation today? Do we need to have more revelation today? No. So that's how the church, that's our position. Now, my brothers and sisters in my old charismatic communion, they believe that it happened all the time. I wouldn't question their salvation. I would not. They're sincere believers. I wouldn't want them to occupy the pulpit. But I don't question their salvation. Rob? I just want to say thank you for saying that. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. They taught me a lot. They loved me. I was a wretch. Right. Well, there's some very learned men, Wayne Grudem, who will affirm the ongoing relevance of spiritual gifts. So he's a far better scholar than I'll ever be. I just disagree with him here, and I think most of Reformed teachers would too. So the same power that created the world is exercised in preserving the creatures God made. That's the point. He's the author of our being and the continuing author of our being for the sake of the elect. And hence, we speak of creation, and we're really referring to the very first act. History begins, and it's explosive, and it just continues all of history. So government, then. He preserves and he governs. He who created all things governs his handiwork. Kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. The Lord reigns. That's comprehensive, and it's absolute. And his sovereign, sovereign government is absolute. It's everlasting. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And your dominion endures throughout all generations. He never abdicates the throne, ever. There is nothing that happens in this world or throughout history that is not under his sovereign and wise control. I can't explain it. I don't know why he lets things happen the way they do, but I know that he does. So it's at this point that most of the difficulties with God's providence come to light. He has to be the author of sin, right? If he governs it all, he has to be the author of sin. Now, that is a human, rational way to try to understand it. He is above our thoughts. He is infinitely above us. I don't know how he does it, but he tells me that he does. How can we be free and yet he govern our choices? Right, that's the key. That's the question. And again, um, Linda reminded me of this, our professor, um, Dr. Klein. He was teaching in Romans 9 one time in class. And there was some young seminarians. You know how young seminarians can be pretty cocky. Just 
peppering him with questions about, you know, election and God's sovereign. How can this be? This is not right. And Dr. Klein was at the board, and there was this pregnant pause. You thought, what's going on? All of a sudden, he wheels around, points his finger, and says, who are you, oh man, to answer back to God? And she reminded me of that. It was profound. And that's exactly what Paul says. Who are you to question God? He's God. (laughs) His government is holy. We know that. So that in no aspect of it can there be anything that is evil or sinful. Now, that's his government. His government is wise so that he uses the best means at the best times for the best ends. And his government is powerful so that whatever he pleases comes to pass under his almighty power. Those who love God, we're told, for them, all things work together for good. For those who are called. So, there is no such thing as tragedy for the Christian. There's no such thing. And all things are tragedies for the unbeliever. He gets a good job. He marries the girl of his dreams. He has a nice home and obedient children. Those are tragedies. Because for the unbeliever, it's simply heaping up more wrath for the day of judgment. For the Christian, nothing is a tragedy. The story was told that there was a man who was, uh, he was an older man, and he was suffering some severe pain. And his son came to him and said, Dad, I, I wish I could take some of your pain for you. And the father, being a sincere believer, said to him, I don't have any pain to spare. Because he believed in God's providence. If God sends it, take it. It's mine. I must need it. He sends it lovingly. Whatever it is, there are no tragedies for the Christian. Nothing is tragic. All things work together for good. Now, of course, it's painful. We're disappointed. We can grieve, you lose a loved one, you're bereaved. It's not a tragedy. He's infinitely wise. He must know the good reason for it, and he'll use it for his purpose. So that begins his government. Any, any comments or questions at this point? Yeah, Jim? When I get concerned about things that are happening or tomorrow or you know, all the things that uh, go through our mind on a daily basis, one of the comforting scripture pieces is be still and know that I am God. Yeah. It's not up to me to do something. It's not up to me to know something or to rationalize or to figure this out or figure that out. Did, you know, did, did God really part the Red Sea or did they know where to go across and the Egyptians did not? It's just be still and know that I am God. Right. Uh, Jesus said, unless you become like a child, you can't enter the kingdom of God, right? So as with a childlike disposition, we trust him. You know, our little children, we tell them they believe anything we say. They believe everything we say. And it's the same way. Whatever God says, we believe. Or we ought to. He's trustworthy. And a childlike disposition, that's the way we approach and receive the scriptures. Oh, Nate? I don't know. Here we go. Uh, what was the purpose behind separating out God's works of creation and God's works of providence? If 
Or Providence is the continuing creation. Yeah, either way, right. I think there's a way because in the beginning with Genesis, you know, obviously there's some emphasis there that God is the creator, that he brought everything into being. And then there's this idea that he continues his work in history. So there is a distinction chronologically between the beginning and the rest. So I think theologically, perhaps that's why they would give two words to it. And there are some who would probably disagree with this. I mean, I don't, I mean, it's not wrong, I don't think, but it's probably a minority. Um, but I think, I think it's helpful to use those two words to distinguish what happened at the very beginning, that there was this distinct, explosive creation. And to say, okay, well, that just continues. And in God's providence, you know, he numbers the hares and watches the sparrows and feeds us, and there's nothing to be anxious for and all of that. So that's, that's my guess. So would you say then that there's an aspect in which God's still creating, meaning like expanding yeah. the universe, continuing to life? Or is that definitive act of creation done? I think, again, this gets into this view. That power, let's think of the power that was exerted to create out of nothing. Yeah. Explosive. It appears. And that power never stopped. Now, you can call that a continuous creation because he's creating animals and people and all kinds of things on a daily basis. Or you can say that's the first act of providence and it's just one long act. However you want to describe that, I think it's the same power. It's not as if God's sort of explosion and then kind of let up on the accelerator and that was the end of it, just kind of cruise control. See, that, that, to me, that's the idea I get when I hear some say, well, God created huge, magnificent creative power. And then he kind of just preserves us. We kind of go about our daily lives and he keeps us from destruction, falling into non-being, but that's it. No. His power, that creative power, is still at work, sustaining us, preserving us, governing everything. It never abated. And every breath you draw is attributed to that same divine power. And I think that's where the value comes here. I don't think we would dis I think it's an intramural debate, but I think the value of it is that God is close. He is with us, and he sustains us. Was there another hand over here? Oh, Jonathan? The value of that, I, I like this. Um, I wonder if the value of it also comes in the ability to talk about creation as a category today and in some of the current Christ, so that we can point to things that are self-evident as part of creation, not that creation uh, was one thing that ended, but we're still living it. It's the reason why we're still being given in marriage and having marriages, because that's a creational reality, as distinct from the redemptive uh, things that are specific to the redemptive. I hadn't thought of that, but you're right. That's a creation ordinance. It was established at the beginning, and it continues. God makes marriages every day. Yeah, which is obviously still controversial and relevant in all of our discussions with unbelievers today. Right, right. I think what we don't want to do, we don't want to lessen the seventh-day Sabbath rest that God took, that that is very significant because that's where we're heading, entering his rest. But I don't think that rest emphasizes him ceasing to work. 
I think it emphasizes him being enthroned upon the praises of his creatures, sitting ensconced in heaven as the ruler of all. So, was there another hand back there? Mary Alice, did you have a hand? Yes. This word, create. Are you saying, Scott, that this ongoing creation somewhere on the fringes of the universe or other than where we are, he's creating new and different forms of life? No, that's not what I'm saying. No, that's not what I'm saying. I guess what I'm saying is that we can think of the whole thing as here's the beginning of providence. You want to call it creation? Fine. Providence starts and never stops. That's what I'm saying. Is that a way to, is that a better way to say it? Maybe? Yes, Ruthann? Right. Um, because he's made everything you know, in that period of time we're calling creation out of nothing. And now he's making all things from the time he made Adam from the dust. Now he's making all of us and all the creatures and all the plants through the ordinary means he has set up. But when you get down to that atomic level, you know, all these whirling pieces of atoms, and no one knows exactly how all those forces are held together. And most of everything is empty space, but it feels solid to us. That, to me, helps me... I connect with him sustaining every atom throughout the universe, all the gravitational pulls, all right. these ecosystems, you know, my heart beating without my consciousness being able to affect that, or, you know, sustain that myself, that sustaining, yeah. uh, he's, he's as powerfully working everywhere as he was at that moment when he brought things to nothing. Absolutely, absolutely. Nate, and then we'll go to Melissa. I'm just having a hard time squaring this Genesis 2-2 when it says, on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. And so God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Right. Yeah, and you square that with what Jesus says, my father continues to work yeah. and I work too. So the idea is not that God just stopped Okay, so how do we interpret this very important passage, right? And that's the whole idea. Okay, so if he rested from this explosive beginning, he is enthroned. He is seated and ensconced on the throne of heaven. It's like the coronation ceremony, right? He makes man as the crown of his creation, and God is, he takes complacency in his creation. Ah, oh, it's a good thing. But he doesn't stop working. He doesn't abate his power. And I guess that's what I'm saying is that what Genesis 2-2 is teaching is that he's the king. Everlasting dominion. Everlasting throne. But his power, the same power that created the sun, sustains the sun. It doesn't stop. But it's different work. It's different chronologically, right. But not qualitatively. I don't think it's different qualitatively. Like, there is this huge distinction between what he did, the power he exerted at the beginning to bring it all into being, and the power he exerts in the atoms and the molecules and everything else right now. It's the power that never stopped. Yeah, I, yeah. I just, okay. Yeah, Rob? I mean, there was an eighth day, right? I mean, so what did God do on the eighth day? 
He continued. Yeah. So, I mean, and Jesus said Sabbath was made for man, not man Sabbath. Right. So, does that have something to do with it? Yeah, he blessed that seventh day. It's not so much for his good as it is for ours. So, he ordained it as a day for his service, and he blessed it as a means of blessing us in our sanctifying it, right? So that's what it, this day is a day of blessing. Sadly, throughout the centuries, we've taken it and made it a club. You know, you can't do this, can't do that. But it's really a day of blessing. And if we try to observe it the way he tells us to observe it, there's blessing involved. It's a rich blessing. If you can take that day and set it apart, like, you know, we all understand Christmas, well, most of us, we all understand Christmas. Christmas Day is coming. What do you do for Christmas Day? Well, you get everything done beforehand so that you and your family can have a wonderful Christmas Day celebration and not have to be distracted. You know, things are closed. You go to the store, it's closed. We're focused on celebrating Christmas. Okay, well, let's take that principle and apply it to the Lord's Day. You know, you're preparing for it. This day is coming. This first day of the week is going to be great. We're going to focus and be blessed through it with fellowship and worship. It's an amazing thing that he did, and he blessed it at the very beginning. So, yeah, I think you're right. Oh, well, okay. <laughs> we didn't get through. That's okay. The conversation is important. Any final questions or... Uh, yes, I'm sorry, Melissa, I skipped you, yeah. Right. It's not that God's raising us from the dead every day, but it's the same power, the same powerful God. It's that power that's at work in us. And that's a good point. Creation is the same power that He's sustaining His creation. That's right. That's a good, good point. She said the same in the New Testament. Paul says the same power that God used to raise Christ from the dead is at work in us, and it's not a different power. It's the same power, Almighty power, and He is sustaining, preserving, governing, and blessing us through that resurrection power. That's good. Good point. All right, well, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time allotted in which we could study this wonderful doctrine of providence. We acknowledge that so often we fail to recognize your hand at work in the ordinary affairs of life. We pray that you'll help us to discern you at work in our lives, in the small things and the big things. Prepare us now for worship, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.com.